ESPN LA, Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Andy Kamenetsky, Brian Kamenetsky. Our guest immediately put himself on Hollywood's map with his co-directorial feature debut, Menace to Society. He has since gone on to co-direct such feature films as Dead Presidents, From Hell and the Book of Eli. He was the co-director of the documentary American Pimp. And his latest documentary, The Defiant Ones, is a four-part look at the simultaneous rise and partnership of music industry legends Dr. Dre and uh, Jimmy Iovine. Part one on HBO will debut on July 9th, then it runs on consecutive nights uh, July 10th through July 12th. Our guest, Alan Hughes, thank you very much for the time. Uh, thank you, Andy and Brian. Glad to be here. Um, I guess on the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I guess to begin, uh, what prompted you to make the Defiant Ones? Um, you know, me and Dre were talking about doing something on his life, uh, and um, we figured let's just do a documentary. That'd be great because it's such a. He asked me. He said, "He said, do you think it, my life would even be interesting?" I said, "Man, that's the silliest question I ever heard. You live the life of ten men, you know." Um, and so I took it to HBO, and HBO told me that Jimmy Iovine was making an Interscope documentary with them. And I said, let me call you back. And a light bulb went off right then. I'm like, and I've known both men for over 25 years, independent of each other, and right before they met each other. So I was like, wow, I think that's way more fascinating to tell a story of their lives and their partnership in 45 years of music history as well, you know? Yeah, and then that, that creates its own set of problems, though, because what you're talking yeah. about is, you know, just deciding how to tell a story, Alan, about one of those guys just set against one part of their lives could be two or three hours or four hours of documentary making. So mm -hmm. how did you decide how – how do you figure out then how to tell the story of two giants in their industry and where to start the story and where to stop it, what to include, what not to include? Well, I must confess that one of my favorite documentaries of all time is uh, um, it's called The Battle Over Citizen Kane. And it tells the dual stories of William Randolph Hearst, who was a prodigy doted on by his mother, and Orson Welles, who was uh, also a prodigy that was doted on by his mother. And it tells this dual story, and, and then they eventually collide and they destroy each other. So I had that in my mind. I was like, oh, mine's the opposite. They don't destroy each other, but... I saw that tandem storytelling, um, and and it was way more difficult than I thought it would be. But you know, you 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 edit their stories individually first, mm -hmm. and then you try to figure out the commonalities, the themes, you know, the um, the obsessions, you know, and and then you 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 you, you checkerboard it at first, and then you find these modern day interstitial scenes to. To keep it fresh and lively, so it took. It was supposed to take a year. It ended up taking three and a half years. <laughs> yeah, um, and then in the meantime, one of the interesting things about it is straight out of Compton, which you know you actually you know you show scenes of that being filmed, came out mm -hmm. in the interim, which you know t tells kind of retells at least part of Dre's story, refamiliarizes it uh, for a lot of people. That happened while you were making it, and you know before it came out. So did that influence, did knowing that movie was going to come out and what it would be influence your process at all? Not at all at first, because I, 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 all I was aware of was what we shot of him on the set. All I was aware of was that when we started this thing, there, there was no straight-up Compton film. You know, it wasn't greenlit. So um, 
even when we started rolling film uh, or, or collecting data, as they say these days, <laughs> really no film left. Um, it was three weeks before that Apple deal leaked out, and that and it became a disaster. You know, it was a nightmare for us because we didn't. You know, so I didn't even know if I had it. That's how far back I go with this um, process. So yeah, when when Compton Straight Outta Compton came out, when I got to see it, I go, oh, this makes it. This is great for the doc because. It's it's it, people who wouldn't normally be hip to NWA. Are, it, obviously, that film went pop, so a lot of non-hip hop fans watched that film, and so I knew also the stories we need to highlight that had nothing to do with things in that film. But I knew the film would be very helpful as far as uh, opening people's minds to the hip hop component because the Defiant Ones is so much more than obviously hip hop. You got a lot of rock. And Jimmy's background, and then they all, they all comes together when they meet, and it's pop, and you know, alternative. But it, I think it transcends the film. The most, the the thing I'm most proud of is it transcends a music doc type thing. It becomes about life, you know, and and how to move forward and 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 pursue your your dream, you know, your dreams. Yeah, that, that's interesting because one commonality between Dre and Jimmy is actually their backgrounds. You know, they both come from this hard scrabble environment. They both weren't necessarily happy kids. They had to hustle. They found a refuge in music and they found success at a really young age. And I think that's something that's going to surprise a lot of viewers because, you know, with the racial and eth ethnic differences, there's going to be a lot of assumptions that these guys have mm -hmm. a lot more different backgrounds than they actually do. Yes. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, uh, as Jimmy likes to put it, they both came from not only that, but racially charged neighborhoods, you know, mm -hmm. um, where it wasn't easy for black and white to get along, you know, um, and, and they forged this incredible partnership. Uh, I mean, forget about all the success, the fact that they're partners and still thriving and, and, you know, uh, innovating and doing great things, and it's just you know, um, and still excited is a is a it's it's a miracle. You know, do you think that you know Dre being black, Jimmy being white, as far as their partnership enhances it in certain ways, or, or the way they can figure out how projects are going to work, what's what's going to connect with audiences? Yeah, I think that's the number one thing about. I mean, there's so many things I've I've observed about their partnership, but the number one thing is. They both know the other one brings a perspective that the, the other one doesn't have. Sometimes it has to just do with this, you know, just creatively, and sometimes it's because of their backgrounds, you know, their respective backgrounds that, you know, they, they play into each other's strengths, and they, they're not envious of each other's. They, one doesn't want to be the other. But Dre being from where he's from and Jimmy being from where he's from, they both have a different life experience that they bring to their partnership, and I've seen it in action. You know, they produce each other. How does that apply, Alan, to the to the types of music that that they both work? I mean, because Jimmy Ivey, particularly, I mean, the 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 breadth of of artists, you know, from rock guitarists to you know Marilyn Manson, to, I mean, everything in between, is is stunning. What do you think can, kind of contributes or, or accounts for their ability to find? excellence across so many genres i think one thing about dre and jimmy that they have in common and maybe they would they'll be upset that it's one of their little secrets is 
they got a, first of all, they, their guts are great. They got great instincts. But they also listen in the room. They, they see what people are reacting to. And Jimmy is really obsessive about this. He may love something, but every time anyone comes in his office, he's going to play that song. He's going to play that song. And he's going to see until it's 100% where everyone, no matter who they are, whether you like rock, pop, hip-hop, you know, whatever it is you like, is into it. And then he knows he's just, he's got it. Yeah, and I, and I forget, like, I forget which scene it was in the movie, which artist specifically. He said, you know, somebody was asking Jimmy about why he liked that, and this doesn't seem to work. And he said, I was watching the people in the room, in the club, and they were responding. Yeah. I, forget, I forget which, which artist yeah, it he was. Went to, he went to Europe with, the, with Timberland. Yes. And it was the first time he experienced, like, that whole club four on the floor beat, you know, that dance music thing. And he saw the way people were... He understood. He understands the drum, right? And they both—that's where they really meet. Was is that the beat? It's it's ironic beats, you know. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy saw people on that four on the floor thing. He's like, oh, if I take this with a hip hop producer, with this type of female vocalist, and he he always understood the alchemy that goes into like hitting everyone, you know. And so what's the line for these guys between, you know, as as a producer, as an artist, as you know, you have to have confidence that your ear and your eye is is good sometimes like no matter what other people think. But then also having that talent of observing the room and seeing, you know, what people are going to like. I mean, that's anticipated. That seems like a really difficult way he saw that, you know, because the night that's a hit, whether whether or not anybody else can recognize it. It is. Stop dragging my heart around. That is a hit, whether anyone else yeah. can see it. Yeah. You know, I don't know. You know, Jimmy's a, uh, you know, Jimmy plays that all down, like, you know, his his gut. But, you know, um, you know, I, I relate to it because I know when I hear something and I go, man, this is something to do about, you know, we call it earworm. You know, when you hear earworm, you're like, it sticks with you, and you know. Mm-hmm. And it's something about the the, the the writing and and the fidelity as well. Like the confluence of all those things come together, and they're excellent. You know, you got something, right? But Jimmy did something really interesting. Andre, they years ago, about fifteen years ago, maybe I don't know, around two thousand, right across the street from Jimmy's office at Universal Music, they built a club. They built a club, a night like a, like a nightlife club that was private and they would invite a bunch of people and women and whatever to, and they would play tracks and they, the, the people that know Jimmy and Dre were there and they would play like, you know, all the current hits that are out and then they would slide in a new record and then watch people's reaction. And Dre always told me something. He says, you know what? He says, women don't lie. <laughs> and he, and he meant that in a creative way. You know what I mean? Because we all lie, don't get me wrong. But I knew what he, I know what he meant when he said that. When he was talking about his music, he was talking about when 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 he plays a record. He goes, "Because women don't move the shit they don't feel. Men will front because they want to be your homie or this, that, and the other." You know what I'm saying? So they were able to actually even take that to another level. They actually had like a a, 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 a laboratory to study what people were moving to. You know. Well, it's also interesting, too, because both Jimmy and Dre have this shared sense of culture, you know, like music, the music Mm -hmm. that fueled their eyes, whether you're talking about like Springsteen for Jimmy or NWA with Dre, like this is 
cultural music and like Beats mm-hmm. later became a cultural brand rather rather than just headphones. Straight up, yeah. So I mean, that, like th- that, I'm I'm sure like that's part of the gift they have is like recognizing okay who. Who are the people that are listening to this music? Like, who are they, and therefore, what are they going to identify with? Yes, and Jimmy is a, a freaking genius at that. You know, who, what is the target audience, and what do they want, and how do they want it? You know, he has the questions. You know, he 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 definitely. And you know, Dre, for as mysterious as he is, and as as innovative as he is. He also wants people to feel it, you know, so he studies that, you know, he plays that down, but he, he absolutely studies what people are feeling, you know, some of it, some of his best record, you know, all his, listen, the times where he didn't have success, which is outlined in the um, um, part, the opening of part four, was when he went off and just did his own thing and just was kind of experimenting, you know, and, and, it, and it was the first uh, two failures of his career. Um, the movie also documents uh, Tupac's rise and, and his eventual mm-hmm. death, and you, and you actually knew Tupac well mm-hmm. before he was with Suge Knight. You directed a few of his videos. You guys actually had a falling out when he was originally cast mm-hmm. in Menace. When he when he and Tupac were baiting Bad Boy and fueling that East Coast West Coast feud, how much of that do you think was truly personal versus maybe marketing trying to stay in the headlines in a way that spun out of control? Well, I, I could tell you, you know, um, not just di- directing his music videos, and it was my brother and I did his first three music videos. So, we, and he and I became very close. Pac and I became very close before the before the incident happened. And thank God he he was able to apologize before he passed, and and we came to terms with it. But I'll tell you what, that was real. And it was real for one reason: Suge Knight. You know, Suge Knight wanted to go there with that. Suge Knight, when Pac got out of jail, Tupac didn't want to go bananas again. He he definitely wanted to calm down. But, you know, he's been delivered to the hands of this guy. I don't know how you want to describe him, but, you know, just short of Hitler, this guy, he, he wouldn't stop, you know? And he, he's, he's the one in Tupac's head. He's the one fanning the flames. He's the one with all the jealousy issues. And conflict of you know just like you know, we've all heard all the shook stories when there's that much smoke you know come on so I think I think Tupac was a victim of that you know and I I I, I subtly try there's a lot of stuff I don't want to you know when making the film I'm like I'm not gonna spell everything out but you can read right between the lines what's happening you know um, I don't I don't think Shook's responsible for everything that happened in that East Coast West Coast thing. But he he fired the first shot, and and the last shot were fired involved him as well, you know. So I, I, this Alan may be a, a, a really almost impossible, I guess, question to answer. But what do you, how do you think the that that era of of rap and music plays out in a world where Suge isn't part of it? If he wasn't part of it, like hypothetically, yeah, like if you could somehow remove Suge and that influence, because I mean they're. You know, mm-hmm. some certain things that you know that were helpful uh, mm-hmm. for Dre. You know, in terms mm-hmm. of getting his independence and things like that. But if you somehow removed Suge from that environment, how do you think it would have played out? You know, what's funny that's the biggest misnomer too about Suge. That's a great question, by the way. Is that Suge uh, allegedly 
gained Dre his independence. In actuality, Jimmy had to go settle five lawsuits. Yeah, and you document that in the in the movie. Yeah, right? it, it sure didn't do. In, in the rea- in the in reality, you know, there was there was an appearance of a, a strong man around, you know. But at the end of the day. Jimmy and Interscope had to go settle some cases to get that done. Um, if if Suge wasn't, to your question, if Suge wasn't a part of that, the culture of hip-hop, particularly gangster rap at the time, I think it would have eventually gotten out of hand anyway. You know, because um, it just was, at that point in the 90s, gangbanging was already infiltrating gangster rap culture, Right. The crews already had Crips and Bloods mm-hmm. all around and other factions of gangs throughout the country, you know. And so we were headed for uh, some sort of disaster at some point anyway. I don't know if uh, any artist would end up getting killed the way they did, but, you know, uh, it definitely was headed that direction because gang culture had, had come into the music business, you know, uh, you talk about art imitating life and life imitating art. The lines were already so blurred before Tupac signed to death row. And you know what I mean? There, there's sort of no way to put, like, you know, the proverbial toothpaste back in the tube at that point. No, no. We Listen, it, 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 gangster rap, uh, which I was a massive fan of, of and still am a fan of, uh, and I, but I have mixed feelings about it because I'm like a... a uh, a gangster film like Scarface or Goodfellas, um, you know, we know De Niro t- takes his makeup off every night and goes home after he's done playing that, that role in Goodfellas. And we know Al Pacino, when he's done with Scarface, then the day they peel the scar off his face and he goes home and he's Al Pacino. No one ever stopped to tell our culture, hey, kids, these are just records. They're, everything on these records is pretend. You know, these, are, these, guys, are, these guys are acting you know, uh, and it got out of hand because when I came up, when I was 15, 16, 17, I, I, by that time I was out of the hood, we were living in the middle class, upper middle class neighborhood, and all the kids had pagers and dickies and lokes and selling crack cocaine, and they're living in million-dollar houses with their parents. You're like, they're getting rims, you know, cars rimmed up. So it became sexy to be a, a gangbanger or a dope dealer, you know what I'm saying? That's what, that's what gangster rap. It was just, it just, it just, it was that powerful, you know. That's, we were collecting guns. We were, we were collecting guns as teenagers because we thought it was hot, you know. That's interesting because I mean, this actually leads really well into the next question I want to ask you about because the culture wars are a really big part of of the documentary, and. That was one of the big criticisms, the, the glamorization of the gangster lifestyle and all these other things. And you know, it was, what really struck me is, first of all, how far away those debates seem. Like, just you forget mm-hmm. how intense they were. But on the one side, you have this stuff with a heavy racial component when it comes to um, the gangster rap, the backlash against gangster rap, combined with kind of what strikes you as a, as a religious backlash when you start talking mm-hmm. about Marilyn Manson and where where the... The, the fear of that stuff came from when you look back at at the the, the source of discomfort that mainstream America sure. had with that music what you know what strikes you now looking back you know 20 years later got another great question you know I think that 
You know, in the in the era before, you know, everyone talks about Elvis shaking his hips and parents being shook by that, and the Beatles and their haircuts and and Jimi Hendrix and his phallic everything, you know. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, you know, there was a point, and I think that was part of the process with this film is we have to de- we had to decant the nineties. We had to decant. 95, 96, when it all really was, it sounded great, and it was so visceral, and it was so charged, and it was so in your face, and it was and it was great. However, when you listen to the lyrics and what's being said, it ain't about haircuts or shaking hips or phallic guitar and some guy's tongue whipping out. You're literally talking about killing, you know. <laughs> You're in the basement now. There's no, there's nowhere else to go down. So, and I think that no matter how great the music sounded, the reality is, I would be shook as a parent. You know, I would, if I had an eight-year-old that was listening to that, that hip hop, and it's great music. You know what I mean? But it's not, it's not, she loves me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's that scene where Jimmy is talking about, you know, these culture wars that Brian just referenced and that you were just talking yeah. about. And he says, you know, it, it, when he's getting pressure about the label, you know, am I defending free speech or am I defending mm-hmm. Hamas, you know, when, yes. when it comes to yeah. Tupac and Suge and what was going on with Death Row? And that, to me, watching it felt like a, a microcosm of the battle over censorship. You know, like how much yeah. how much is this art imitating life? How responsible are artists and record companies for for what what they're producing? Yeah, and I think I think someone for like Jimmy and what a lot of those record executives wouldn't understand is that because they didn't see it affecting no one had died. It hadn't hurt anyone per se, right? Right. Um, and until until uh, uh, Tupac's death. That's when you're like, oh, wow, how did it go from A to Z? And, it, and, and then one would realize, like, no, there was A, B, C. Or you can look at the evidence. It was all there. It was all, it was all leading to that point. But in the interest of all of us, in the interest of entertainment, profits, whatever one's motives were at the time, it was easy to not see the whole alphabet leading to Z, which was the eventual uh, shooting of Tupac and killing of uh, Biggie as well, you know? I mean, you don't you don't want to see it. I think in that you don't moment, want to see it. you don't want. By the way, you know, as, as Michael Fuchs said in, in the in the film, is like it was the most lucrative time in the music business. The CDs cost less to produce than vinyl and cassettes. No one knew that. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So you know, you have this thing. You know, it's like this little thing of ours. It's like like La Costa Nostra. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before we before we let you go, we wanted to talk a little bit about your career in general. Uh, Menace mm-hmm. to Society put you and your brother on the map really quickly and immediately as pretty young directors. What did you think the reaction to that movie was going to be? Uh, we before it came out, we thought our careers were over because we thought it was a piece <laughs> of shit, so <laughs> answer why. Uh, it, it wasn't what it, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. It wasn't. It didn't look and feel like the movie we wanted to make. We didn't get. We were looking at all the corny moments, and we just thought that it just. We just didn't think it was great, and and we were just in a funk, you know. And then people didn't uh, knew I started holding screenings, and there was just incredible reaction. In fact, it was the reaction we wish we would have got for the film we wanted to make, and 
And then it just became a surreal journey from then on. Like, oh, people love this thing, and it's and it's affecting people. Not when I say love it, it was affecting the emotional effect it had on people. It was what we were set out to do, and, and me and him had to look at each other at one point and just go, hey, well, forget what we think about the film. It, these people really are in, impacted by the, the statement we we wanted to make, and and um and we eventually learned to uh, accept it fairly recently, actually. <laughs> it, it took it took you that long to to recognize what other people saw in it. Yeah, it took it took. I think it was five years ago was the first time I came around to understanding, and it wasn't until like two years ago that I really understood. You know. Um, and, and so where do you go from there? Because, you know, like, you know, Dead Presidents, another super ambitious film mm-hmm. when, when you're young and, you know, you have a lot of things to say and mm-hmm. you're trying to organize stories and, and, and make movies. What are the challenges that come with that? Because when you have a lot mm-hmm. to say, it's also hard to tell a story. I think what happened with my brother and I was, you know, we were fortunate enough. We were making movies, little movies since we were 12, but we were fortunate enough that somehow we were on a feature film set at 20 years old, you know, and, you know, we're, we, I, we're obviously not Orson Welles, but we suffered the same fate in the short run, which is, you know, it, 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 it wasn't, a, it was socially stunted and politically stunted our, our careers. Cause we didn't know, you know, you're, you're kids, you know, um, you didn't know this is not normal or this is, right. you don't know, we didn't know anything about politics in Hollywood. We was to fire off in the press. There was all kinds of controversy over the stuff we were saying, you know, and I didn't know if someone asked you a question, I did, did you're not supposed to, you, you can, you know, we just, we were taught to a- answer the question. <laughs> I've, re- I've seen the old interviews. <laughs> you did. <laughs> it took a while, but now I feel like, me personally, it's like I, got, I think the best is yet to come because now I, and he has as well, lived a life and know how to go about telling a story and have something to really say. Because as a kid, you, you know, you don't really, you got thoughts. You know, you have a lot of thoughts. I had a lot of thoughts. But as far as like something to say and how to put it together properly, and and also move the medium, like challenge the medium. As uh, that's what my proudest thing about the Defiant Ones is the first piece of work that I've done since uh, Tupac's friend has got a baby music video that I'm proud of. You know? Wow! Really? I, yeah. And that that fits. But that's a long seemed, time. It's a, <laughs> it's a very long. And with, time. with by the way, some work other people seem to like in between. We've liked it for what it's right. worth. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting you say that because this notion that the, the, one of the constant themes through the doc is reinvention. We were talking about yeah. Jimmy Ivey and reinventing himself yeah. over and over again. Dre, re- so it sounds like it, it you identify with that as mm-hmm. as a theme in the movie on a personal mm-hmm. level, not just in terms of the subjects. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. I've always been obsessed with reinvention, and you know you 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 know, but we all run our own race. And you think your friend, and you're like, oh, man, he did that when he was 25, or he, she did that when she was 35, or whoever did that when they were 40. I get, I'm age-obsessed as well, you know. Um, and then you realize, like, you know what? You, everyone's running their own race, and everyone reinvents if they're after that. At, in their, you can't force it, you know. Um, 
and this project, this the, the Defiant Ones, was just like the perfect glove to go over my hand because all the themes and all the sub-themes and all the emotions and thoughts and the feelings are me. It's who I am. So it was, it was second nature to me. It was the most difficult and painful process I've ever been involved in. But, you know, I, uh, I was told by a friend the other day, a good friend of mine, Nelson George, we were out to dinner, and he's like, you know, part one is about obsession. I said, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, no, he goes on, he elaborates. I go, uh, no, I guess that's a byproduct of I'm still making it, and I was still cutting it like, up until a week ago. <laughs> um, but I didn't know, and also I'm so close. It's, it's so you know, like the, the, the you know, when you're a filmmaker, you're you're finding you know there was this there was this something I heard recently about because I think documentaries when you make bi- biographies, you know biographies they become the modern day version of when great artists used to paint portraits of great men and women, right? And there was this statement I heard recently that when there's when those portraits are painted by those artists of that of that king or that queen, it said more about the artist painting it than it did the subject. And I thought that was fascinating. That is interesting. Uh, my my last thing for you, Alan, is like, you are obviously somebody who loves music, and yeah, you know, and Not like. Part of part of the reason Andy and I like to do this podcast is because you know fundamentally we just like having conversations with interesting people, um, mm-hmm. and so this lets us do something that we really like to do. You are creating something, and the I am telling you, when people see the documentary and they see the uh, the sheer number of people that are coming through, both from the hip hop side, from the rock side, from the mm-hmm. industry side. If you're a person who loves music, the opportunity to just sit down with all of these people. Um, mm-hmm. You know how how are you able to enjoy it because you're you know you are so concerned about the project or do you get to actually think to yourself, man, that was Springsteen. There's Dre. More time with Dre. There's Eminem. There's like, mm-hmm. you know, how much of, how much did you actually get to enjoy? Mm, as much as a, nothing is like war, so people get sensitive and they should because you shouldn't make war comparisons. But it's like the fog of war. You know, um, you're living in the moment. Um, you're so busy trying to um, be in the moment so you don't get <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that you can't appreciate it like you one would at home, you know, watching it. You know what I mean? And so, you know, you're there. And when I interviewed any of those subjects, I started with a clipboard with questions. And invariably, everyone, every interview, I'd throw down the clipboard on the ground. I just had a conversation because I couldn't do it. I couldn't I couldn't do the clipboard thing, you know. Um, I couldn't do the uh, uh, be uh, Ted Koppel or Tom Brokaw or Charlie Rose, you know. I had to do what I did on American Pimp, and I found a magic on American Pimp, which is, I talked to them like they were my, they talked to me like we were brothers or cousins or homies. And that's what I would try to bring to this. And I said, that's the, I said, so I enjoyed that. Whether I was talking Springsteen or Snoop, the one thing that I, I enjoyed was the conversation, not the interview. Then uh, the last question I had for you, Alan, um, one of the things I noticed in the Defiant Ones that I thought was really interesting is the commonality between 
a record producer and a film director. Like you're, you're like you're rolling both cases. You're coaxing performance. You're seeing what the artist might recognize in front of them. You're steering a ship. Did you see this? And I guess if the answer is yes, did you learn anything from studying Dre or Jimmy that you can use as a director? Oh, 100% uh, learned so much. And try to boil it down to one thing is the most difficult thing, you know. Um, but as a director, you know, Jimmy and Dre, there's this thing, you know, Jimmy's an operator. He's a world-class operator, you know. So I, I knew about, I broke it down to three personality types before this film. You know, you got hustlers, you got players, and you got like blue-collar, like lunch pail Joe type people that go to work and, you know, workhorses, right? Um, those are the personality types, you know. And then you have uh, operators like David Geffen and Jimmy Ivey. And Dre's become quite quite, quite an operator himself and an artist, you know. And, you, you, you know, what I learned uh, from both of them is that if you focus completely on the art, you're in trouble. <laughs> you're in trouble you really are if you don't look at the whole if you're not able to look at the whole chessboard or the whole football field and see the big picture and what needs to be done who you need to align yourself with and what moves need to be made you're going to you know languish in obscurity your whole life or if you're lucky you'll be working you know so you know it sounds it sounds I don't know how that comes across, but you know, you 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 know, they they did teach me that. You know, through their actions, they didn't show it to me. I mean, they didn't tell me. I mean, just through their actions, you go, wow. They, their love for great artists, their love of collaborating, their love of giving over to the truth in the room, no matter who says it. If someone says something that's just honest and true, they acquiesce to it right away. But they also understand that there's this other side that we need to rally the troops, get. Grease the pistons and the wheels and get this business side cracking as hard as the as the artists cracking, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, it absolutely does. Everything is firing and all. And that's what Interscope did. It was That's why that stuff was hitting like it was hitting, because Jimmy mastered the art as well as Dre is. Let Eminem be Eminem, and we'll do the rest. The movie is The Defiant Ones. Part 1 debuts on HBO July 9th, then parts 2, 3, and 4 run on consecutive nights July 10th through 12th. Alan Hughes, thank you very much, man. We really appreciate it and enjoyed this. Thank you, gentlemen. I really, that was, that was fun. Well, cool, thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. We'd love to have you back down the road. Thank you.